precious to you. Today's message has to do with something written in the book of Jeremiah regarding the old past and the old ways. In the 16th chapter, excuse me, 6th chapter, 16th verse, he talks about the need for his people to return to the old past, the ancient, ancient ways, to follow what God has given them in previous times. It's interesting that Scripture tells us in Romans 15.4 that we should consider things written beforehand in order to allow us to endure, to have patience, and of course to have hope in the things that are coming. And when Jeremiah wrote regarding the needs for his people to return to the old past, he was addressing a nation of people that were already divided. There was a northern kingdom, there was a southern kingdom. Jeremiah was prophesying to the southern kingdom, often identified as Judah. They had wandered from God. They had completely abandoned him. And in some senses, even though they were going to the temple to worship, as soon as they left there, they would go back to the high places of the hills and watch worship their false gods. They were hypocritical right to the core. So how about you and I? How do we fit in this plan regarding seeking the old paths and the old ways? Let's consider Jesus, our Redeemer, and consider some examples from the New Testament regarding what it means to follow the old paths and the old ways. I've noticed often in study, it's hard sometimes to recognize what it is that God wants us to do specifically because we get caught up so often in trying to go beyond what God has written. It's part of our nature as humans. We seem to need to add something or find something more in his word. So here's what I'd like to do this morning. I'd like to take the time this morning to share some stories from you from a book. Uh, there's actually true stories in this book. And after we talk about each story in the book, I want us to look to Jesus for the application regarding the message that's in the story. Now, I did share something with my wife this morning. This is one of her books, by the way. Uh, but there often are good information in these stories that she reads regarding interacting with people. And as I was picking the book up this morning, I looked on the inside cover, and I'd missed this before, but let me read what this says. The date is March the 26th. The year is 2005. It says, to Sister Bessie Lorenzo, who was always at her post, ready to take a stand for the cause. It is signed, very truly yours, Centra Dicker. Now, I know for the Brown family, the coming week holds moments of probably some anxiety, some sorrow, and some grief, and some reflection. But I'd like for you to know today, not by any path of mine, but by God's providence, that the Brown family, in a sense, has a hand in today's message. So thank you for years of service to Brother uh, Joseph Brown and the years he served as a minister and, of course, to the family. So uh, bid you Godspeed in that as well. So let's start this morning with the first one. This is titled The Red Umbrella. As the drought continued for what seemed an eternity, a small community of Midwestern farmers were in a quandary as to what to do. The rain was important not only in order to keep the crops healthy, but to sustain the townspeople's very way of living. As the problem became more urgent, the local church felt it was time to get involved. They planned a prayer meeting in order to ask for rain. The pastor soon arrived, watched as his congregation continued to file in, 
He slowly circulated from group to group as he made his way to the front in order to officially begin the meeting. Everyone he encountered was visiting across the aisles, enjoying the chance to socialize with their close friends. And as the pastor finally secured his place in front of his flock, his thoughts were on the importance of quieting the crowd and starting the meeting. It's time to begin praying. Just as he began asking for quiet, he noticed an 11-year-old girl sitting in the front, pew in front of him. She looked like an angel, beaming with excitement, ready for the prayer session. Sitting next to her was her little red umbrella. The beauty and the innocence of this sight made the pastor smile to himself as he realized the faith this young girl possessed that the rest of the people in the room seemed to have forgotten. You see, for the rest, they had come to pray. For the little 11-year-old girl with the red umbrella, she came to pray and to see God go to work. So what does Jesus teach us regarding prayer? Early in his ministry in Matthew chapter 7, he said, Ask, and you shall receive. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and the door will be opened unto you. For everyone who asks, receives. Everyone who seeks, finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door will be opened, and Christ will let you come in. It's interesting. Prayer is something we do all the time. We're busy with it. But how much does it really influence us and change our lives? Could we be like this a little 11-year-old girl that after you get through with the prayer session, I need to put my umbrella up because it's about to rain? What kind of faith this child had, right? Jesus himself, I think, in, in order to help us better understand it, had a dealing with prayer that was difficult for him also. You know, when it says, knock and the door will be open to you, for many years I tried to understand the value of what it means to enter in. I think it's best expressed in the Philippian letter in chapter 4. He says, be anxious about nothing, but in everything, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your soul and your desires through Christ Jesus. I've learned that in prayer, when we take something before God's throne and ask Jesus to intercede for us, we need to begin to look for him to go to work. Not necessarily for the exact specific thing we ask for, but the fact that he is mindful of all of our needs always. And we begin to look for him in all the ways he protects us and keeps us and provides for us. And in so doing, in a sense, we've got that peace that transcends all understanding resting within us. It was something that Jesus worked so hard to convince his followers. In Mark chapter 11, we'll use this other example as well. Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem, preparing for the crucifixion. As he arrives, of course, he enters the city, and then he goes back out of the city to take a little bit of breather or break time. In verse 12 of Mark 11, it says this. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, where Jesus had gone, he was hungry, Jesus was. Saw a fig tree in the distance. He set out to find if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. And then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard him say it. Soon we'll see that the tree did die as soon as Jesus cursed it. But I've always wondered, why did Jesus give us this example? Why was he so cruel to just a simple fig tree? 
Now, I know that Jesus had just entered Jerusalem. He knows the cross is approaching. His human side is at that moment when, you know what? I'm about to get brutally beaten, hung, crucified. I would imagine his emotions are pretty on edge. We can think of our own lives. We've got a doctor's appointment and don't know what the results are. Got a toothache and a dentist we've got to go see. Whatever we're approaching that might be harmful or painful, we are anxious regarding it. Jesus is anxious at this moment. He would like some figs, but the tree is barren. It says in the next passage, as he goes into the temple, as he usually does to teach and to pray, he finds those exchanging goods, buying and selling. One reference in the gospel says he goes and makes a cord, and he makes a whip, if you will, to overturn the tables, not only to beat the four-legged creatures, but the two-legged animals, his human beings, who have disregarded his temple to drive everybody out. Seems to me like Jesus, my redeemer, is really out of control. And then, of course, we get the follow-up regarding the fig tree. In the morning, as they went along, this is in verse 20, they saw the fig tree without the roots, withered from the roots. Peter remembered, and he said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has died, has withered. He says this, have faith in God. I tell you the truth. If anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea, does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it. It will be yours. You may not see it the way you want to see it, but believe it. When you ask, when you seek, when you knock, God responds. So what is the example we give for us as far as following the old path? We are praying people. Prayer changes everything. But in our prayer life, not only do we ask God, but we look for him to move and to make the change. Start looking for God in your prayer life. You'll be following the old path. It's essential. The next story. This one is titled, For My Sister. This is a true story of a little boy whose sister needed a blood transfusion. The doctor explained that she had the same disease the boy had recovered from two years earlier. Her only chance of recovery was a transfusion from someone who had previously conquered the disease. And since the children had the same rare blood type, the boy was an ideal donor. Would you give your blood to Mary, the doctor asked. Johnny hesitated. He lowered his lip, started to tremble. Then he smiled and said, sure, for my sister. Soon the two children were wheeled into the hospital room. Mary, pale and thin, Johnny, robust and healthy. Neither one spoke, but when their eyes met, Johnny grinned. As the nurse inserted the needle into his arm, Johnny's smile began to fade. He watched the blood flow through the tube. When the ordeal was almost over, Johnny raised his voice and motioned to the doctor. Doctor said, yes, Johnny. He said, doctor, when do I die? Only then did the doctor realize why Johnny has hesitated when he asked him to have a transfusion for his sister. You see, he thought giving his blood to his sister meant giving up his life. In that brief moment, Johnny had made the great decision for my sister. Now for us, how does this apply to us for looking at Jesus and his example? 
Let me share a couple of passages with you, then I want to talk a little bit from the book of 1 Peter as well. As Jesus approached the cross, the Gospel of John gives much indication as to how he's feeling regarding his relationship to his closest followers. In John chapter 13, verse 34, a passage very familiar to us, he tells them, I'm going to give you a new commandment. I give you this one. Love one another. Now, I've often wondered, why would this be a new commandment? The two great commandments were love the Lord your God with all your whole heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. But he says it this way. As I have loved you, so love one another. And what has Jesus done in order to love them? He had done many miracles, but he is surrendering his life on their behalf. By this commandment, all men will know that you are my disciples, by the love that you have one for another. Little John, he certainly demonstrated what it meant to love his sister. He was willing to die for his sister. Jesus has then asked us to die for one another, but he's asked us to love one another unconditionally, to care for one another in a way that's special beyond. So how does it look, or how does the example show to us what it means to love one another? Let me read this to you. You've heard it so many times, usually at the marriage altar, but it applies to all alike. Listen carefully. This is how we love. This is how we follow the old past under New Testament times. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects. Love always trusts. Love always hopes. Love always perseveres. Love never fails. And in 1 Peter chapter 4, he urged the brethren to love one another deeply, sincerely. What he's saying there is, whatever it takes to care for your brother, your sister, love one another. And all these examples, this is how we watch the old past, the ancient past, in New Testament times, just the way Jesus told us to do it. Next story. This is a a tough one as well, but it's an important one too. This is called the hand. It's Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving Day, and there's an editorial in a newspaper told by a school teacher who asked her first graders to draw a picture of something they were thankful for. The teacher thought of how these little children from poor neighborhoods actually had to be thankful for. But she knew she had not much to be thankful for. But she knew that most of them would draw pictures of turkeys on tables with food. The teacher was taken aback when she got a picture from Douglas handed in. It was simply a childishly drawn hand on a piece of paper. Now what she did when she collected them, it says here, she didn't put their names on the paper. She just collected them, but she knew whose paper belonged to each child, so she picked them up. And then she's going to hold them up and have the students comment on the picture to see what they saw. When she saw Douglas's, she said, the hand, whose hand? So she held it up for the class, and the class was captivated by the abstract image. I think it must be the hand of God that brings us food, said one child. Good answer. 
A farmer said another because he grows the turkeys. Finally, when the others were back at work, the teacher bent over Douglas' desk and asked whose hand was it? Douglas looked up and said to the teacher, it's your hand. She recalled frequently at recess how she had taken Douglas, a scrubbly, uh, forlorn boy or child, by the hand when she took him out for recess. She often did that with the children, but it meant so much to Douglas. Perhaps this was everyone's thanksgiving, not for the material things given to us for the chance, but in, a, uh, but in any other way, a small way, to give others our hand. So what does this mean for us? Well, let's take a look at Jesus and how he followed his life. In Matthew chapter 8, beginning at verse 1, it said that a leper came up to Jesus, asking for him to heal him. He took his hand and touched the leper, contrary to the old law, never touched someone who was leprous, and he healed him. But he touched him for this reason. He wanted the leper to know that not only could he heal him, but he cared about the situation that he was in. It wasn't just the healing that the hand performed. In that same chapter in Matthew chapter 8, he's at Peter's mother-in-law's house and she has a fever. Jesus takes her by the hand and heals her. She gets up and prepares a meal for them. In Matthew chapter 9, we have an account of a ruler of the synagogue named Jairus. He has a daughter who is seriously ill. He seeks Jesus' help. He says, I'll go with you. Of course, he's interrupted on the way by the woman with the issue of blood. And then, of course, the conversation with her, his servants come to him and says, don't bother the master, he's dead. But Jesus says, we'll continue to go. Have faith. He gets to the house, puts out the mourners, goes in to Jairus, takes the girl by the hand, and she gets up. He raises her from the dead. Matthew chapter 14. Jesus' apostles are struggling across the lake. Jesus has given them orders to go across the other side. And, of course, he goes into a mountain to pray. He comes to them at night, walking on the water. And, of course, they're scared, frightened. Is it you? If it's you, have us come to us, Peter said. Jesus says, come. Peter gets out of the boat, starts walking, looks at the sea, realizes he's not a fish. He's about to go down. What does Jesus do? Immediately gives him his hand. I don't know how he got back to the boat. I think Peter expounded on this a few weeks ago regarding it. I don't think he dragged Peter back to the boat, but I think he took his hand all the way back to the boat. All he said was to him, why did you doubt? Oh, he has little faith. He didn't rebuke him. He just told him to keep the faith. In chapter 19 of Matthew, People come with their children to give them to Jesus, asking him to put his hands on them and to pray for them. The disciples say, shoo them away. Jesus rebukes them. Let the little children come unto me. Such is the kingdom of heaven. And why are the children like the kingdom of heaven? They're ones who want to be loved and know how to love. And when you care for people, that is what the kingdom of God is all about, loving one another. And, of course, he puts his hand on and blesses them. And then think about this for a moment. This is the part that really kind of touches everyone regarding it. Jesus gave his hand to me, and he gave his hand to you. 
He gave both hands to the whole world. He opened them up and let them drive nails in so that your sins and mine could be forgiven. So what does it mean to take a child's hand? Why was this so important for Douglas? Well, here's our lesson for us, of course, in following the old way. Whatever we can do to change a person's life, to influence in a way to struggles, losses, agony, uncertainty, all kinds of illnesses and sicknesses, give your hand to the struggling person. Let's do it this way, this says in the Colossian letter. This is in chapter 3, beginning of verse 12. The Holy Spirit tells us, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other. Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. That you, and above all, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. He goes on to say, Then you let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And of course, be thankful. And then let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom. And as you sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs of gratitude in your heart to the Lord. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Give your hand, just like the teacher who took little Douglas's hand. Whatever you can do with the gifts God has given you, make a difference. If you're uh, in a calling or a position in life that you can change people's lives, give them your hand. Make a difference for those who are struggling. One more story. This is called Eye on the Goal. This is a story about a drama that someone saw on TV, but it's a true story. The story concerned a 40-year-old divorced teacher from Boston who decided to become a jogger and eventually entered the 26-mile Boston Marathon. To finish the race became her goal. In spite of being harassed, jeered at, assaulted, she did not lose sight of the goal. We don't have any details as to why she wanted to do this. She just felt in her life, maybe the divorce was something that was struggling with her life at that point. Maybe the fact that she still had children to raise on her own was really being difficult. But she felt within herself she needed to have a goal that she could accomplish to give her some strength. The day of the race came, she faced her ultimate test. As she ran, huge blisters developed on her feet. She was also hit and injured by a bicycle. Several miles short of the finish line, she found herself utterly exhausted. Yet she kept going. Then within a few hundred yards of the finish line, late at night, when most other runners had already finished and gone home, she dropped out. She fell down. She lay flat on the ground, too tired to even raise her head. But her friends had put up a crude tape across the finish line, and they were still there waiting for her, cheering her on. She lifted her head with great effort, saw the tape, 
and realized her goal was within sight. With a supreme effort, she got up on her bruised and bleeding feet. In a burst of energy dredged up from deep inside her courageous heart, she ran the last few yards. She had kept her eyes on the goal for the joy of finishing, and she endured. We're to do the same from our example of Christ did on earth. He kept looking at the goal, not the going. He was seeing the prize and not the process. He saw the treasure, not the trial. He saw the joy, not the journey. We must do the same. Jesus was a great example of this as well as by keeping the eye on the goal. You remember in Matthew chapter 16, this is probably toward the center, toward the back end of his ministry, he's got a chance to talk to his closest followers. Who do men say I am? He asked them. This is a moment of truth for him and his followers. Some say the prophet Elijah, somebody else. Jesus says, well, who do you say I am? Peter gives the answer. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon, or Jonah. Flesh and blood didn't tell you this, but my Father in heaven revealed it to you. And of course, and upon this truth that I am the Son of God, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. What an exciting moment for everybody there. You know, if we try to envision it how we do in our modern times, I can see Jesus putting his hand in and everybody putting in. We're in, we're in. All right, we've got it now. Let's go. Let's go finish this. Let's go get our position of authority and location. And then at this moment, as Jesus is realizing they're doing it, in verse 21, he begins this way. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Now, at this point, if I'm one of the apostles, I'm about to take my hand out of the middle. I'm not in for that. At this point on, Jesus begins over and over again to remind them of what he's here for. How did Jesus get to the cross? Eyes on the goal. It says in Matthew chapter 17, as he took Peter, James, and John up into the mountain, which they often called the Mount of Transfiguration, he saw Elijah and Moses was there as uh, Jesus was talking with them. Of course, Peter's got a great idea. Let's build a tabernacle for each one of you. And the voice from heaven comes. This is my beloved son. Hear ye him. Now, if I was Jesus standing on that mountain, and I've got Moses and Elijah over here, and over here I've got Peter, James, and John, which one do I take? Who do I go with? But Jesus never took his eye off the gold. I can talk with them now. I don't know what they said. It's not recorded for us. But I have to go with these men because I have a purpose. He's coming down off the mountain. As they were coming down the mountain, he says this to them. Don't tell anyone what you've seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Now, how well they understood what he meant being raised from the dead, I doubt they did. But Jesus never took his eyes off the gold. And throughout Scripture, from this point forward, he continues to remind them, would I be lifted up I'll draw all men unto me. I must go to Jerusalem. The hour has come. Scripture will be fulfilled. I must go to the cross. He never took his eyes off the goal. So how about you and I? This is our old path. This is our journey for us. This is how we follow the path that God has asked us to do. We must keep our eyes on the goal. 
And you might say to yourself, well, I know, I got, I've got my eyes on the goal. But how well do we declare it? You know, the inspired Paul, as he's closing his earthly journey here, often mentioned how much he was looking forward to seeing Christ. Of course, he'd been through so many things as it was, but he wanted to know more what it like to be in his presence. Philippians chapter 3, listen to these words. Paul says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this, or have already been made perfect or complete, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I'm going for the gold. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, I forget what is behind, I strain forward to what is ahead, for the prize I press to the goal, to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Amen. That's our motto. That's our call. That's where we're headed. I like the way he said it in 2 Peter chapter 1, or excuse me, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. He declared, I know who I have believed in, and I am convinced that he is able to guard the things that I have entrusted to him until that day. What is that day? That's all of our days when we finish this earthly journey. But he said, I know God will guard everything within me to that day. Keeping the old past and New Testament times, do not lose sight of the gold. And of course, the best part about it was that when he got ready to close his letter to Timothy, he said in the verse number 6, I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time has come for my departure. I'm not in a hurry to leave this life. But I know where I stand now at this point, that dying is actually living. Because when the end does come, eternal life begins. He says this, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness with the Lord's the righteous judge. He'll award to me in that day. And not to me only, but to all those who have longed for his appearing. That's you and I. Yes, no matter what the decision we have to make, whatever the opportunity to proclaim him, whatever way every day, whatever we're engaged in, never lose sight of the goal. Keep your eyes on eternity. It's what God wants us to do. Reminds me of 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, I think at the close it talks about the fact that where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death, of course, is sin. But in verse 57, the scripture says, Thanks be to God that we have the victory over death through our Lord Jesus Christ. We're never going to die. Physically, yes. But the person that you and I are internally lives forever. Let me close this way to remind everyone regarding it. The red umbrella. Pray and watch God work. For my sister, love unconditionally. Love deeply. Care for one another and for those around you. The hand. Use the gifts God has given you every day. Have the words to say, seasoned by God's word, to encourage and support. Look and be ready to help in any way you can. And finally, 
the eyes on the goal. Finish the race. He'll carry you all the way through. So, in closing today, let me give you a few more words from Jesus, which I think would be important to you. In order for us to do all of these things and to follow the old path on the New Testament times, we have to listen to what Jesus has to say. He said, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Whoever should believe in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Do you believe in him? Good. He also said it's necessary, in Luke 13, 3, as he's talking to the Pharisees and Sadducees and teachers of the law because they were so hard-headed, except you repent or decide to make a change, you cannot be saved. You cannot inherit everlasting life. You have to make a change. Are you willing to change? In Matthew chapter 10, again he's addressing the crowds. And he makes a declaration Whoever confesses me before men, I will confess before my heavenly Father. The one who denies me before men, I will deny him before my heavenly Father. What does it mean to confess him? It means to declare that you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Do you? The next thing he told us is in Mark chapter 16, 15 to 16, he talked at the close of his earthly journey. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. It's such a simple statement. He that believeth not shall be condemned or damned. Will you get baptized into Christ and inherit everlasting life? If you're here today and you haven't done it, we'll have that opportunity for you. At our Shepherd's Blessing, of course, prayer will be offered. If you'd like to at that time, let us know that you want to obey the gospel. We will baptize you. And finally, if you're here today and it's a struggle for you to sometimes follow the things that I've suggested this day, Meditate on it. Speak with God regarding it. And let it become a part of your life. Bow with me, please. Our Father in heaven, we thank you again for our time that we've shared from your holy word. The things that you have written for us to learn, to follow, to obey, and of course to strengthen us. They are so precious. Please, Father, help us to be followers of the old past, the ancient ways. Help us to follow Jesus in every example that he's given us. And as we have opportunity in our life's walk to be the servant, the person that you've called us to be, all honor, praise, and glory to your holy and adorable name. We love you, Father, and we thank you for all you do for us. Continue with us at this hour, please. It's in Jesus' name we humbly pray. Amen. Thank you, everyone.